Micah chapter 6. The other, other just quick announcement I would mention is we are going to be finishing up Micah. As you know, we've been in a series in the Minor Prophets, and we're taking two weeks to work through these books. And uh, next week, we're going to be in the book of Nahum. And so uh, as we've been encouraging you leading up to that, that particular book, take time to listen through or read through or both one time, multiple times, those particular books. So you can kind of get a feel for what's going on, ask questions, and be prepared to receive. And so um, it's a shorter read. It maybe take you seven to eight minutes to read the book. And so no excuse for us not to be able to kind of lean into that. Um, so I encourage you to do that. My hope in this Minor Prophets series is that you have, uh, there's just been an interest and an accessibility and a relevance to these books that seem to be so sort of distant. And uh, my prayer is that you're experiencing that. I know that from, I am experiencing that as I get to sit and hear the word preached and I get to, to study. And so I'm hoping God will have, once again, my prayer is something for us today. Here, we're going to basically be in Micah 6 for most of our, our morning. Um, this is part two, and we introduced Micah last week. Uh, in Micah, we hear God's judgment coming to Israel and yet we hear this promise of God's divine grace coming through this, this shepherd king, this Messiah who would come and his kingdom would prevail and he would save his people by his steadfast love and his faithfulness despite Israel's wanderings. And if you recall, we had these three sections that we considered in Micah, each one with an oracle of doom Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, that would be an awesome like thrash metal band. <laughs> Oracles of Doom. Maybe you're into that kind of band. Maybe it's taken, I don't know. So you've got these Oracles of Doom, these warnings, these judgments. And you start, they, each one starts with this, this pronouncement, hear or listen to what the Lord says. And those are followed by a promise of God's hope of redemption. We saw two of these sections last week, and we're going to begin to look at this third pronouncement here in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to read, and then we will pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent you before Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your church to hear your word once again spoken to our hearts. And Lord, we know that if there's any fruit that will come to our hearts, any change, any transformation, any provoking of worship or trust or conviction, it's going to come by your spirit. So Lord, would you bring 
and come with your spirit here today. Open up our hearts to, to hear and to see and to know you more. And so illuminate your truth. Help me to preach in a way that would honor you, Lord, so that we may become more like you, Jesus, today. Amen. Amen. Well, this little section here has been termed a covenant lawsuit. And so we have God here laying out his, his legal case before Israel. And he calls upon the mountains to be witnesses, these mountains that have been around since the foundation. They've seen it all. They know what's going on. They've observed. And he calls on them to be witnesses, to listen and hear the case, to hear and agree with what he says as he brings his charge against Israel. And rather than listing a bunch of sins or failures, as he has done, exposing Israel, he, he brings attention to what he has done for them, the good that God has done for Israel. And the Lord asks, basically, what have, what have I done to you? Have I not proved my goodness and my love towards you? Why are you responding to me in this way? Answer me. And the Lord proceeds to point to their redemption from the slavery in Egypt. And this, these words that you see, I wearied you, have I wearied you, and I brought you up, are very similar in the Hebrew, something we would miss in the English. He's basically saying, rather than putting weights on you, I am the one who has lifted that from you. Miraculously, slavery you were delivered from, and I provided for you leaders Faithful ones like Moses and Aaron and Miriam, in contrast to the failed ones that are all around you right now at the moment. And God stacks on other examples of his provision and protection. The story of Balaam's blessing when Balak wanted Israel to be cursed. And then this journey from Shittim to Gilgal it is the journey that Israel took as Joshua led his people into the promised land. And there they came upon the river Jordan, and just as if as God did at the Red Sea and parted them and parted the, the Red Sea and people went in. This is the exact gift of God's miraculous saving. Jericho would eventually be defeated and God's people would be delivered into a new country. And he did this all so they would see his saving acts or his righteous acts that you may know my righteous acts. God's rebuke to them is, you should know these things. My deliverance should have an impact upon your heart. I have been faithful. You're not clueless, Israel, to know what I have done, my character, and what should be impacting your life and living out in your own character. And really, we're going to see two points this morning, and this is God affirming his righteousness, his character, who he is, and what his people should be doing in their character, how they should be reflecting him. And he begins by pointing back to this Exodus deliverance. The Exodus is, is the pinnacle of God's deliverance for Israel. And we even see it traced all the way through the New Testament. God points us back to this as this epic example of God's saving power his covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Remember, God's blessing to Abraham back in Genesis 12, Abraham was going to be a blessing, and from him, all families on earth will be a blessing through you, he says, off from his offspring. 
And Israel was to reflect God as his chosen people, represent him to the nations. Israel grows as a people. They are enslaved in Egypt. God, faithful to his promise, he delivers them. It says in Exodus that he, he says, I bore them on eagles' wings. He brought them to himself to make them his treasure a, a, and commissioned them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to the world. A gracious deliverance, they're to respond in humble trust and obedience in response. And we see in Exodus, God, God descended upon a mountain. And there he said, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. And he hides Moses in a cleft. And this is what Exodus tells us in chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will be by no means clear the guilty. So the Lord is revealing his name and in turn revealing his character in who he is. A God abounding in steadfast love, mercy, grace, and faithfulness. Holy and just, he will deal with sin, but merciful and willing to forgive. This is what Micah's pronouncing. This is what God is pronouncing to them. This is what the Lord is charging Israel has forgotten. Who Yahweh is. Have I, have I not been good to you? Have I not shown you my goodness? Haven't I given you proof of my loyalty and care of who I am and who, who you should be in response to me because of grace and mercy? Now note this word that God gives to define his relationship with his people. Steadfast love. I want to take a moment to kind of just drill in on that a little bit. Now we saw this last week in chapter seven, God's reason for why he will rescue Israel again after exile. Verse 18 in chapter seven, who is like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. See that again. Sounds familiar. Ringing of Exodus you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. Now it's difficult to translate and our Bible appears differently in different places. It's, it's seen as kindness or faithfulness, sometimes mercy, goodness, loyalty, or steadfast love. This, this word is supposed to capture God's, God's personal, unchanging commitment to his people. One theologian, Alex Matier, he describes God's covenant love this way. It combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. The warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. This is who Yahweh is to his people. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. Lamentations 3, a familiar verse. Because of the Lord's great love or his steadfast love, we are not consumed. 
for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 136 is a is an amazing psalm. And there's this refrain repeated 26 times throughout that psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. There's a line, and then there's his steadfast love endures forever. Repeated over and over again. Worship leaders love this, this, uh, this psalm because those who are bugged by the repetition of certain lines in songs, I would just encourage you, go sing Psalm 136. You'll say it over and over again. But the Lord wanted Israel to do that. He wanted them to get who he is, who he was, and be reminded of that. The psalm shows us that because of his love, his steadfast love, he created the world. His steadfast love, he chose Israel. His steadfast love, he delivers them. Out of his steadfast love, he destroys his enemies. Out of his steadfast love, he uses judgment to discipline his people. All because of his covenant love. God had been displaying his character throughout Israel's history. And he's reminding them of his character throughout Micah. His sovereignty. He's supreme. He is sovereign. He will crush kingdoms. Babylon is nothing to me. Assyria is nothing to me. Time and future are in my hands. His righteousness is seen throughout Micah. God told him he would deliver them, but they are an unrighteous people, and he is righteous. He has never sinned. He is always true, and their wickedness, in contrast, deserved judgment because of their rebellion, and he also will destroy enemies because of their unrighteousness. And we see his mercy. We see his chesed. Forgiveness offered to those who would turn, repent, and put their trust in him. God wants to display his character to his people. And he's reminding them of it. He's committed to his glory. And he wants his people to be committed to his glory. Israel should know this. And in turn, trust and obey and reflect his character. And yet, and yet Israel is chafing at this. Israel now, look at verse six with me, in this sort of covenant lawsuit, they sort of give their defense. They turn and ask God some questions. Be careful when you're bringing accusational questions against the Lord. But they tell him, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with, a thou, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is going on here? It's like they're saying, wait, wait, Lord, don't you see all of our worship, all of our sacrifice? Don't you see all of our religious things that we are doing? Israel lays out these external religious works as proof that they are committed. And there's this progression to their, their defense from good, better to best, at least in their mind. Burnt offerings, check. And it's not just an itty-bitty calf. This is, this is a year-old calf. We've spent a lot of money raising this calf. It's beautiful. It's big. It's healthy. And how about our rams? Not just one or two or ten, but we 
have given you thousand rams, Lord. And not just a jar of oil. Lord, we got you ten thousands of rivers of oil. Now, this is getting ridiculous. Do you hear Micah's sarcasm in this, exposing their foolishness? And if that's not enough, Lord, we will offer up our firstborn for our sin. Now, this is probably not a reference to pagan worship where other pagan nations would offer their children as children's sacrifices. It's likely seeking to emulate Abraham's powerful example of faith as he offered up his son Isaac. They're saying, we have done the the epic sacrifice. We are willing to offer up our children. But these are all empty and vain expressions of what really is the opposite of their heart. Just external religion. As we have seen already, this absolute disconnect between their profession, their identity as God's chosen people, and the life that they should be living. You should be able to look at God's people and know that they are God's people by how they live. Their covenant community was in destruction. The Lord's steadfast love was not shaping their life. And now God addresses them back. What he wants to see in his people. The character that they should possess expressed in the lives that they live towards him and towards one another. Look at verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What's amazing about this verse is there's, there's this indictment, but there's also this invitation. Like return to what you should be. Now this is a familiar verse. You probably maybe had this memorized. I mean, during this past year, I don't know how many times I've probably saw it going through my social media feeds. The other day I was in a meeting with Josh Montague. He had a hat with that embroidered on the top. I don't know what he was doing with that on. Maybe like, you better preach this, Nate. Um, But God charges them. He, He says, I've shown you what is good. I've shown you who I am. And your life should reflect this. It should be in a response to this. So let's look at these three things that God lays out for them. What does it mean to do justice? Well, we must begin with the context. So you remember as we enter into a particular text, we say, what's going on then and there? What is God saying? Well, we have seen where Israel is. Micah 3, the rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice. And make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Israel was practicing injustice. They detested justice. And we knew the expressions of that were the vulnerable were being oppressed. They were corrupt judges. They were corrupt pastors. They were corrupt politicians. It's a total breakdown in families and relationships in the community. See, justice is rooted in the righteousness of God. It's an overflow of his character. And his people were to reflect this. One theologian put it this way. To do justice requires a total lifestyle that accords with the standard 
of what the Lord has shown is right and proper, particularly by his own words and actions. We look to God, we look to how he's revealed himself in his word, in his law, and we reflect who he is. God did not want rivers of oil. He wanted true worship that flowed from hearts of faith shown in ethical living. How people were treated, how children were treated, how women were treated, how the poor were treated. And Israel should know this, caring, honoring, protecting, judging righteously with equity. And this is what God has done to Israel. He is the one that reached down to the enslaved, to the oppressed, to the poor, and he pulled them out and saved them, and he lifted them up. There's a charge that the Lord require you to love kindness. Now we, here we find this beautiful word that we talked about earlier, chesed. The scripture basically reads, to love steadfast love. Maybe your Bible has mercy in there. That's, the translating this word is difficult. Love mercy. Love God's covenantal faithfulness. The Lord says, I who delights to show mercy and kindness, you also be people who love steadfast, loyal, committed love. It's much, ripper, much deeper and wider and richer than just be nice. This is a, not a command to be nice. This is a command to reflect God's covenantal faithful love. Chesed. A merciful love, a forbearing love, a faithful love, a loyal love that moves from vertical to horizontal towards others. This is true love of your neighbor. God had compassion towards them and they were to reflect that same mercy and compassion towards others, even the foreigner. And the Lord requires you to walk humbly with your God. This meant for someone to live all of life, this picture of walking in humble worship and fellowship with the Lord. He wants his people looking to him, trusting on him, submitting to his authority, submitting to his word, He is supreme, not his people. But spiritual pride had taken a toll on Judah. Judah was enamored by their power and their wealth. And if you're caught up in your power and your wealth, you you cannot be humble. You cannot submit to God's ways. So one, walking humble before the Lord, will in turn also walk humbly before, before others. Israel however, would not be saved by some behavior modification. God was not calling them for to behavior modification. They needed a transformation, something deep within their heart, a radical work of the Spirit of God by a Messiah. Now, we looked last week at some of the hope breaking in in chapter 4. I wish we could cover all the nuances and details and all of these beautiful pictures of hope in this book, but for sake of time, we don't get to. But we, we do see this picture. In this day, there was this mountain, and many nations would come, ascend this mountain, and there the Lord would be with them, the merciful God, and he will do justice on their behalf, rightly judging Israel's sin and also vanquishing their enemies. 
And he's going to gather up this afflicted remnant. Weapons are going to be reformed and fashioned into tools to farm with. Each person, it says, is going to have a vine and a tree to sit under. There's going to be provision for all. The poor and the rich, everyone, the afflicted, the cast off, the lame, all are going to be gathered under this king. No one's afraid. There's peace among his people. And they all walk in his name forever, humbly before their God. And the Lord reigns over his people. That looks beautiful. That looks like a place of of justice and humility and love and mercy. About 100 years later from Micah's prophecy, God would bring the first group of Judah into exile into Babylon. Another group would come later into exile. And 70 years after that, God would restore his people and bring them back, back home. In chapter 7, we see this, this text in verse 8. The city of Jerusalem is sort of personified speaking. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Israel realized it was not because Assyria was powerful or Babylon was great. This would all happen because of the due justice of God. And their return would all happen because of God's mercy. He is the one that would do mercy. His covenantal faithfulness. And Israel ultimately needed someone to plead her case to establish her right. And it would not be within them. It would be God's righteousness that would be seen. Not their own that would bring them in to the light. And church, we, we are not unlike Israel. Israel, we have failed to remember what is good and what the Lord would require. And we don't come into his light by our righteousness, but by a righteousness as well as by a justice and a mercy that comes from somebody else to us. Somebody who embodied steadfast love, who embodied what chesed truly means. And all the hard and, and doom oracles of judgment that we see and we witness, there's this, there's this powerful reality that we see throughout all of the prophets and that we see culminate in the New Testament. Dane Ortland captures it this way. Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Israel was not loyal. They were not loyal and provoked God's judgment. Yet mercy was ready to burst forth upon them. 
And we see mercy most fully flowing from the person of Jesus Christ, the very image of God, through this humble servant, Jesus, Jesus Christ, this one that Micah prophesied would come from Bethlehem. Jesus was the fullness and complete picture of loyal love. He perfectly walked in faithfulness to God's law. He perfectly loved his neighbor as he should. He displayed radical mercy and kindness to all the poor and rich alike, Jew or Gentile, the clean or the unclean. And he humbly laid down his life. Though he was rich, he became poor to be servant of all. And in his perfect justice, church, he, he was the one, in his perfect justice, lifting up the lowly, speaking truth and radical mercy, he became the one who took upon our unjust, unjust living. He gave life for the unjust. He bore the Lord's wrath instead of his people. He was treated as the covenant breaker so that covenant breakers could experience his righteousness. At the cross, church, the unwavering, loyal, faithful, steadfast love was displayed. Evil was judged, sin dealt with, and grace and mercy was offered by a humble servant. And this is for all. This is for all of those who fail to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. Jesus is the true chesed. And he welcomes all sinners, all of those who failed in this way. So if you, if you are not a Christian, you're an unbeliever, and you feel like this, this list, the rules have been broken too many times, there is a Savior who invites you to put your faith and trust upon him. And Jesus now, through his people, continues to extend his, his light to the nations. That promise of extending his light to others now comes by Christ embodying, filling his people and going out and showing his mercy and his justice and his love. Peter put it this way, we are children of light, 1 Peter 2.9. And it says, we're declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we now, as believers, Christ saving his people, changing us, we have a Savior who now calls us and by his grace empowers us to live out Micah 6.8, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before him. The, the New Testament affirms this. Scripture affirms this for us. To do justice, Christians are to rightly be concerned and engage with social issues. James tells us, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. Proverbs echoes this. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Now, there's much we could say around doing justice. There's many books and many things that could be communicated, but we know that God would call us to respond in ways that does not neglect this. Jesus rebukes the religious for trying to show how holy they were by neglecting the deep heart issues of what God required. 
Look at this and notice the similarity in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of a law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others. As Christians, we are called to love our neighbor. We are called to value life. All image bearers of God, the unborn, yes, the unborn, but the poor and the elderly and the immigrant, all people, image bearers of God, and to love mercy. Because he first loved us, it's proof that his love is in us and our love for others should manifest. First John 1, or 1 John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also also ought to love one another. Remember Israel's retort to God, we're willing to offer up our children in worship. Look at all of our religious things. I think a New Testament equivalent is Paul speaking to the church in Corinthians chapter 13. Their giftiness wasn't proof of how holy and religious they were. It was love. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Loving, steadfast love. Loving mercy. One of the beauties built into that word is this sense of loyalty and commitment. Church, what would it look like in a, in a cancel, cancel culture for God's people to exhibit and live in a loyal love, a commitment to one another. It would be a radical witness, a radical witness as we loved one another. Jesus teaches us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the obligations we have to our neighbor, the religious priest and the Levite, they passed by the wounded man, they ignored him. The true neighbor was the one who, in the Greek is the same word you see in the Old Testament uh, Greek translation, who did mercy, who did chesed. Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for them. We are to love mercy and we are to walk humbly. James charges us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We turn from our proud, autonomous hearts and we, we look to our gracious God. And when we do humble ourselves before him, that, that looks and expands into our humility towards others. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3 captures us for us humility expressed in love and mercy. Humility and mercy empowers us to engage others with truth without having to, to condemn and go apocalyptic on other people. We as believers should be able to engage those who are starkly different than us with peace, with gentleness, with respect, and be open to reason. And humility moves us towards one another in dependence. It brings us to be people of confession. I, I'm struggling. I need to confess my sins to you. Would you pray for me? I'm in need. I'm, I need you to pray for me. I need help. Would you pray for me? We move towards the Lord and we move towards one another. Church, we, we have all failed 
to live in the good and the beauty of these. And that's what's so powerful about grace. Grace to forgive where we failed and grace to empower us to walk in it, to be changed in it. I tell you, in all the pessimism about Christianity, and there were so many different ways I felt I could go with this sermon, and, but in all the, the pessimism about Christianity in our nation, and we're not getting helped. We're not getting helped by you know, mobs of lawless people storming the Capitol with Jesus save signs and playing worship music and praying. Um, that's not helpful to the name of Christ. But I tell you, in all the conflict, there is a moment for us to seize and to lean in and to model what Jesus is. To say, do you know who God is? To reflect his character, to be witnesses of his mercy and his love and his righteousness clothed in humility. These all have to go together. We can't be championing justice and there be no humility. They all go together. But this starts not at Capitol Hill. It doesn't start in the presidency. It starts with God's church. It starts with us, saints. It starts with his people. We cannot be like Israel, vain, religious externals, but hearts that are not matching up with what we're professing. But we are people who will humble ourselves before the Lord. We will own our sins and our failures. We will confess them. We will seek to love one another when it's hard and to love those outside the church when it's hard and be willing to admit when we've erred to live in Micah 6.8, to care for our neighbors, to see a blessings to our city, to labor hard for racial peace, to speak to injustices when we see them and get involved in ways that we can, to speak truth and despise lies and not promote and perpetuate lies. And this comes with a daily looking to Christ, our true has said, where when we behold him, it says that we will be transformed to be like him. So church, because of Christ, we can do justice, we can love mercy, we can walk humbly before him as God transforms our heart. It is made possible because of what Jesus does in his people. Amen? This, this is the way. This is the way for us. So church, as we wrap up, let's, let's delight in the covenantal, steadfast love of God for us. If you're struggling with condemnation, Know that what is pent up in the Lord is his mercy, ready to burst forth and spill out over you. And he has most fully done that in Jesus, and you can rush into that grace today. And so in our struggles of sin and sufferings, he's not going to let us go. He's not going to let us go. And so let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have not forsaken us. In all the ways that we have forgotten what is good and what you require of us and what we forget and neglect on a daily basis. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. The perfect picture of has said for us who would come and be justice for us and do justice for us and walk humbly before the Lord for us in righteousness and the one who would love mercy in such a way that you would take all of our injustices and our sin and unrighteousness upon yourself. Thank you. May, may today be a, 
a word that would humble us, but not crush us, but it would empower us to run towards these things in obedience. Do that in us, Lord God, as your church. For your glory, we know for our joy. Amen.